Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Traffic Jam. I'm Isabel, and I'm here with Georgia. Hello. If you listened to our last episode, thank you so much for coming back. If this is your first time hearing us, feel free to go back to episode one, where we introduced ourselves and the nonprofit that we work for, MISCO, and our introduction on human trafficking, date rape devices, and our first MythBuster. Should we do a little recap on human trafficking to kick it off? Yeah, a little review never hurt anybody. All right. An agreed-upon definition of human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain a person to be used for labor or to perform sexual acts. If this person is a minor, force, fraud, and coercion do not need to apply for it to be considered trafficking. Additionally, there are many stereotypes that exist around human trafficking. While some stereotypical examples do in fact happen, like, you know, random kidnappings, being held in captivity, etc., we have to expand our understanding of human trafficking and avoid putting it in such a small box. Human trafficking is the second largest criminal enterprise in the world. It's not going to fit into any small box. <laughs> Anyone can be a victim, not just women and small children. So it's up to everyone, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, everyone to get involved in the fight and start by engaging in educational material and sharing it with your loved ones. That educational material is something like this podcast. Trigger warning for all the numbers haters out there. This episode is going to be a little heavy on the data side. Don't tell them that. We want them to stick around. Uh, They have a right to know. Well, I'm just going to go ahead and get started on a little recap. So one of the things that we touched on in the last episode was this common misconception that human trafficking mostly happens in foreign countries and only in relatively small amounts in the U.S. I feel like a lot of people have this idea that it's just not happening as severely as it is in the U.S. But we need to realize the U.S. is not only a destination for predators to come purchase and abuse their victims, but U.S. citizens are also buyers and traffickers themselves. On this episode, we're going to go ahead and try to bring the reality of human trafficking at home here in the U.S. by sharing some data and real cases in recent years. So if you do stick around through all the data, it'll become more of like a true crime example. Something that was shocking to read when we were researching for this episode was that in 2022, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children received more than 19,000 reports of possible child sex trafficking. More than 25,000 children were reported missing as runaways, and one in six of those were likely victims of child sex trafficking. That is so many children, and I could imagine that the true number being much higher with all the cases that are still not reported. It's so scary to think about. Well, the National Institute of Justice put out an interesting report in 2020, and they cited two studies. One looked at jurisdictions with populations of 2.3 million and then 600,000. And researchers concluded that human trafficking incidences identified in law enforcement and social service agency records likely represented only a fraction of the actual incidences. The study found that the official trafficking numbers in one jurisdiction represented as little as 14% and at most 18% 
of the potential total trafficking victims. The article goes on to say that underreporting was even more acute with no more than 6% of potential human trafficking victims captured in these records in both jurisdictions. Those percentages are so small when you think about the bigger picture. But it wasn't even until 2008 that the FBI was authorized to collect offense and arrest data on trafficking as part of the UCR, which is the Uniform Crime Reporting System. Which I think is so shocking because we've known about this issue for like such a long time and only started accounting for it in 2008. For anybody listening, if you are interested in crime data, you should definitely go check out these reports um, under the UCR. They also have this like crime data explorer page where you can break down crimes in different areas and get information on the perpetrators, victims, weapons used. Um, It can really send you down a rabbit hole. So law enforcement agencies report to UCR But the tricky thing about it, though, is, and what you need to keep in mind uh, when looking at it, is that agencies are not required to report. It's all voluntary, so many of them actually don't. Uh, But still, it does give some good data about trends. So keeping all of that in mind, we're going to dive into the 2019 report. This was only the seventh UCR report in U.S. history to contain data on human trafficking. Side note, full UCR reports only up to the year 2019 are accessible on the FBI's webpage. We couldn't get 2020 and beyond. So in 2019, 48 states plus Puerto Rico reported, and these are the numbers, 1,883 incidents of human trafficking, 1,607 commercial sex related, 274 were involuntary servitude, and then the remaining two incidents were not specified. What stuck out to me from those numbers was the large difference between occurrences of commercial sex trafficking and involuntary servitude. So I have a theory on this that's just based on the U.S. and our culture here. So I think it's no surprise that we have more commercial sex incidents than forced labor. In general, we outsource a lot of labor to other nations. So that's just my conclusion. And to nations that don't have as strict labor laws as we see here. We also culturally um, spend a lot of time on the internet. I'm not saying that the internet is a place that causes sexual exploitation, but I think our regulations aren't necessarily the most secure, and it makes it pretty easy for predators to manipulate and catfish victims to lure them into dangerous situations. Obviously, there's so many other factors that play into this, but those are my initial thoughts. Right. I mean, the Internet is, while it doesn't cause the issue, it is a platform that can easily be utilized for like for sex trafficking. Yes. So, I mean, everything that you just said um, about that discrepancy could definitely be a reason. I also think people pay closer attention to sex trafficking compared to labor trafficking in the U.S. specifically. Um, even in like international treaties and laws, like we looked at last episode, it took longer for labor trafficking to even be recognized or discussed compared to sex trafficking. How many out of the 1,883 incidences, though, actually resulted in an arrest? That's what I want to know. Only 708 offenders were arrested. 684 of these were adults and 24 were juveniles. That 
not even half. No, it's not. I want to take a second to clarify that an arrest is not a conviction. Conviction numbers were not reported in the UCR, so I can imagine those were much, much smaller. The UCR does provide data points for what they call clearances, though. And these numbers reflect one of a few different things, but they're not necessarily conviction or prosecution numbers. So like one example could be the offender being charged with another court for petty larceny or other crime, and that gets lumped into this number as well. I genuinely don't like how this is all worded because at the end of the day, it gives data and terminology that really dances around the issue. Personally, if I see arrests, I want to see it followed up by convictions and that they are finding and successfully prosecuting guilty offenders. Or sex trafficking or labor trafficking specifically, and not some other crime that they committed alongside that one. My point exactly. It's just way too broad to say clearances can include arrests, charges, convictions, but it can also include other things that happen in which the offenders were not able to even face prosecution. It's just so frustrating. Well, and that brings us into why prosecution numbers on these types of crimes are even lower than the arrest rates. I mean, there can be several reasons for inadequate criminal justice response such as the victim is criminalized and therefore they're denied justice. Victims may not testify in court or be involved in the case for fear of their safety. Often there is not enough physical evidence to satisfy state standards. A lack of political will, corruption, and weak institutions can be other reasons as well. It's so scary that victims fear so much for their lives and their families that they're sometimes not even willing to testify in court. And then even when there is some sort of prosecution and conviction, perpetrators of sex crimes really do seem to get off on lighter sentences. I know, that's so frustrating to see. And we also have to keep in mind the way that these data points are collected is not an exact representation of the crime as a whole in the U.S. The report for 2019 does include 48 states plus Puerto Rico, but some law enforcement agencies within the state may not include human trafficking in their reporting. The responsibility to report to the UCR is fully up to individual agencies. So we have to account for human error and misunderstandings of human trafficking incidences, misfiling, or just not even reporting every single case that comes uh, to the UCR database. The National Institute for Justice um, that I mentioned earlier actually points out the deficiencies in the UCR reporting system that can be attributed to three specific factors. I thought they were really interesting. Uh, the first one is the relative recency of the incorporation of human trafficking into the UCR, uh, with some jurisdictions moving more quickly than others to contribute their data to the central crime uh, data source. So like you mentioned, it wasn't even until 2008 that it started. And some states are contributing a lot faster than others. Second is the deficient identification of potential human trafficking incidences by local law enforcement. And third, incomplete reporting of identified offenses at the local and state agency levels. So since we just went over all UCR data points and explanations on why we should pretty much take it with a grain of salt, let's jump to a different report. So there was a data set provided by DHS, Department of Homeland Security. They released their 2022 Countering Human Trafficking Report, 
which obviously gives us more data to go off of. And this is based on their internal agencies fighting human trafficking. It's always interesting to see how reporting systems differ and how they evolve over time. For those of you who may not know, DHS is made up of 22 federal departments and agencies that have differing operational components. Uh, Some of these include Citizenship and Immigration Services, Customs and Border Protection, ICE, Secret Service, and TSA. So I'm going to take this right from their stats at a glance on the 2022 report they published. It's one of the first pages in the report. HSI, which is Homeland Security Investigations, reported these numbers. They had 765 victims assisted, 334 continued presence approvals, which for anybody who does not know, because I didn't when I first read this, this allows victims who are potential witnesses to remain in the U.S. temporarily during an ongoing investigations into crimes committed against them. Of the continued presence approvals, 135 were male and 199 were female. There was a total of 1,373 cases initiated, 3,655 arrests, 638 convictions, and 1,045 indictments. So the first thing I noticed uh, from looking at and hearing these numbers and categories is that they broke down their numbers much further and to include arrests, convictions, and indictments. Um, So I do like that they included a stat for how many victims they assisted. I would have preferred them to use the term survivor instead, but it is noteworthy that they um, included this data at all. Uh, So good job for them on that. But I am shocked that they had over 3,000 arrests and only just over 600 convictions. So again, we're seeing that discrepancy. That is a repeating pattern, just like you love to harp on the terminology. I know, I had to say something. (laughs) Yes, I know. It's always a good thing to be reminded of how these phrases matter. So, okay, so to continue building off this trend that we're seeing of low numbers reported, uh, a big discrepancy between arrests and convictions, the National Institute for Justice, again, interviewed law enforcement personnel and got their perspective on the challenges to reporting, which I thought was interesting to get law enforcement's perspective on what they view to be these challenges. Uh, And they identified three. The first one is lack of training. The second is the fact that identification of human trafficking victims is often pushed to later criminal justice proceedings. And third, the fact that the nature of human trafficking crimes often complicates identification. So a common problem for officers is difficulty separating human trafficking from other offenses, such as prostitution or drug-related crimes. Where human trafficking offenses were identified, they were often recorded as other offenses in some cases because offense codes for human trafficking don't exist in record systems or incident reports. I'm going to try to get into the mindset of an officer and their concerns. So let's just start at the scene of a crime. I think that common misconceptions of human trafficking itself make it pretty difficult for these officers to identify what may actually be human trafficking. They tend to put it in a box, like we said earlier. It's not going to fit in the box because they don't realize how broad this really is. 
For a case to be prosecuted, officers must uphold standards of evidence and be able to present that evidence to corroborate survivors' stories of their forced sex or labor. Research does suggest that survivors are often reluctant to talk about their story or of their trafficker, or in many cases, they're initially unaware that their circumstance even constituted human trafficking. Like, what a crazy thought. And then when situations fall outside of those stereotypes of human trafficking, victims, survivors, and law enforcement officers don't even realize everything surrounding these circumstances. This is definitely why prosecution is difficult. Because it's easier to get somebody on drug crimes or prostitution because the evidence is more tangible, where it's harder to prove force, fraud, or coercion. Right. Sometimes you just can't see force. You can't really see the fraud and you can't see the coercion. Um, So I think that's a main contributing factor in the lack of prosecution. Since we know different parts of the problem is in reporting, what are some of the things that can be done? Well, so the article that I just referenced um, continues to then provide some recommendations. Uh, For law enforcement agencies, they suggest to continue training for officers on how to spot a trafficking case, how to record it, and how to refer it to special investigators. Establishment of non-traditional partnerships between law enforcement, labor regulators, uh, inspection services, youth service providers, and immigration advocates to address labor trafficking, and cooperation between law enforcement and prosecutors to develop other kinds of evidence besides victim testimony to prosecute human trafficking cases. And then for non-law enforcement uh, training and supervision of agency staff on identifying trafficking victims, development and adoption of standardized tools to identify trafficking incidences, and creation of a uniform trafficking database to be used across agencies. And to build even further off of that, a guide for the legal sector provided suggestions for law enforcement that can be helpful in giving the courts evidence. This is titled Confronting Commercial Sexual Exploitation and Sex Trafficking of Minors in the United States. So I'm not going to go through all of these suggestions, but I will touch on the few that stood out to me. Written communications between traffickers and victims, such as text messages, DMs, Snapchats, etc. Tattoos or other brandings on the victim. Financial records that might indicate money laundering or other criminal activity. Or even bond receipts, which may indicate whether a trafficker may have bailed out a victim. Or credit card files. Detailed documentation of content and circumstances of -of out-of-court statements made by a victim. And finally, website ads, such as on Craigslist. That's interesting, looking for bond receipts, because I wouldn't have initially assumed or thought about how a trafficker might bail out uh, their victim from like a prostitution case, per se. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't think of that at all. But if you really think about it, a trafficker has invested so much time and effort into building a relationship with their victim and marketing them that bailing their victim out is just a drop in the bucket for them. Right. Well, and in terms of websites, do you remember the whole thing with Backpage? Oh, my God. Yeah, we have to talk about this story. 
So for those of you young Gen Zers who might not know this, Backpage is an online market site that's similar to Craigslist or eBay. Until 2009, Craigslist had a section on their website called Erotic Services, where people would advertise sex. But then in 2009, they changed that area of their site to be called Adult Services, uh, promising to make stricter screenings on like buyers and sellers. Uh, when a medical student was accused of killing a woman that he met on Craigslist. And then in 2010, they officially like stopped listing ads for adult services. I love that their first thought was just, well, if we just change the title of it, it'll be fine. Everything will be fine. More professional. Exactly. Definitely more professional. It's already really shocking how easy it would be to connect with and purchase people on this platform. But it really had to take someone being accused of murder them to even end that kind of advertising i wonder what else happened that went unnoticed well after these ads stopped on craigslist backpage became like the popular site like demanding 80 percent of online commercial sex advertising revenue in the u.s 80 percent they were bringing in the money yeah they were oh my god Another website that I'm on right now gives the story of Backpage being founded in 2004 for people to advertise what they can no longer list on Craigslist. This includes erotic massages, prostitution, and other adult activities. Naturally, this developed into a tool for pimps and traffickers to sell their victims. Surprise, surprise. But this page says that 70% of human trafficking victims report being sold to their abusers online on sites such as Backpage. They were estimated to bring in half a billion dollars in the 14 years it was in operation. I know that this is only audio, but my jaw is on the floor right now. I wish you guys could see her face right now as I read those. So in 2018, Backpage was rightfully shut down by the Department of Justice for charges including money laundering and conspiracy filed against the CEO. Multiple other sex trafficking lawsuits have been filed against this site since. But it's interesting that it was just money laundering and conspiracy, nothing to do with sex trafficking filed by the DOJ. Well, there was a documentary about some of these lawsuits. Uh, The documentary uh, I Am Jane Doe was released in 2017, which brought the Backpage uh, exploitation into the public eye. Uh, It actually refers to Backpage as the Walmart for sex trafficking. I mean, if there's any place you can find something, it's definitely Walmart. So I think that's a good comparison. Did you find anywhere if anybody was held accountable for all of this? Because when I was looking... And I'm trying to still find something right now. I can't see anything substantial in my searches. Well, there have been like some small victories uh, in terms of pursuing like legal justice. I wouldn't really say that anyone was fully held accountable um, or that full justice was served. 
there have been lawsuits brought on like in several different states against the site and shareholders um, and the CEO. Um, they were brought to court. Uh, but initially, like very few of these charges were actually sticking and a lot of them were getting dismissed. So there were children advertised on this site. How are these lawsuits just getting dismissed? They say everything we put on the Internet can always be retraced and it never really goes away. So wouldn't that be the hard physical evidence along with the survivor stories? Well, the main law in question when um, a lot of the lawsuits were initially getting uh, brought forth uh, was really this uh, debate in the Communications Decency Act of 1996. And now what that says is that no provider or user of an interactive uh, computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So essentially, people are saying that Backpage isn't accountable for what third parties put up on their site. So basically, it's a get out of jail free card, pass go, collect $200 for these stakeholders and CEO and allows them to bring in half a billion dollars. Right. Well, and the judiciary seems unprepared to reinterpret the boundaries of the CDA. Uh, In January of 2017, the Supreme Court actually refused to hear a case uh, against Backpage uh, that came out of Boston. And then in December, a California judge dismissed charges of pimping and money laundering that were brought by then Attorney General Kamala Harris against uh, Backpage shareholders Michael Lacey and James Larkin uh, and the CEO Carl Ferrer. And then also in 2017, uh, just ahead of the release of the damning report about Backpage's uh, corporate policies, the site dismantled its adult section. Click on any of the adult like subtabs. And you'll get the message, the government has unconstitutionally censored this content. And a link to Children of the Night, a charity devoted to rescuing America's children from prostitution. As an American citizen, I didn't know advertising and selling children like their cars and furniture was a freedom granted by the U.S. Constitution. Did you know this? No, like children are not objects and should not be treated as like dispensable uh, for somebody to then use for profit. Like, that's not protected anywhere. Not, and not only was this happening through Backpage's site, but they were actually basically coaching pimps and traffickers on how to word their ads to allow them to stay on the site. And this is what uh, the prosecutors were arguing. But then their response to this argument was like, oh, no, we have, you know, terms of service that make it very clear what's legal and what's not. And that's that's it. So then in preparing for the I Am Jane Doe documentary, one NGO actually tried like putting up this fake ad on Backpage. So they tried to post like a 16-year-old for sale. And then in like the drop-down menu um, appeared to like choose an age. And so they pressed 16. And then it says, Oops, you know, you're trying to be a criminal. Try again. You must be over 18. So instead, they posted the ad um, that was titled Hot 16-Year-Olds. 
And then in the drop down uh, tag, they selected 18 as the age. And that worked and got their ad on the site. Which is then, you know, when Backpage is supposed to go in and delete the post uh, anyway. But then the director of the documentary actually interviewed one of the people who monitors the site um, at Backpage. And they explained, um, you know, it would be five minutes, uh, sometimes five hours. Um, these moderators, they often work from home. They're reviewing like 800 ads in an eight hour, you know, 10 hour day. But then one moderator actually um, was quoted saying, I never understood why ads I tried to delete because it clearly was a kid, how I would see it the next day on the site. It turns my stomach to hear and see that all of this was just going on, even though it was technically being checked. But then even the checkers of these ads were basically helpless because these ads just kept popping up and children for sale basically continued right like their ad would get taken down and then and they would just put it right back up like nothing had happened there was a congressional subcommittee investigation on Backpage in 2017 that reported something similar to what you had just described this investigation found that Backpage was erasing words that indicated underage trafficking they would erase words like little girl lolita and Amber Alert. Instead, they would clean up these words and repost the filtered versions of the ad to meet their terms of service. So they were checking them, but making sure they were okay to post. Right. Well, and this is how prosecutors, you know, were arguing that Backpage is essentially training traffickers on how to word their ads to pass the site. I mean, and even with these accusations, it's so complicated how these lawsuits weren't even being upheld initially. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't have any type of legal degree or certificate, but I found other acts related to the CDA that you mentioned. So backtracking, the CDA was enacted in 1996, as you said, as part of Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934. Now, this allowed media sources to essentially not be held responsible for the content posted to their platforms, like you said. But in 2018, the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, also known as the FOSTA Bill, was put into place. This bill states that Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934, which was enacted with the CDA of 1996, was not intended to provide legal protections to websites that unlawfully promote and facilitate prostitution and websites that facilitate traffickers in advising the sale of unlawful sex acts with sex trafficking victims. That's interesting because then in 2016, the CEO of Backpage was arrested after this like three-year investigation conducted by the offices of California Attorney General Kamala Harris um, and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. Then in 2018, he pleaded guilty uh, in state courts in California and Texas and federal court in Arizona to charges of money laundering and conspiracy to facilitate prostitution. 
He also agreed to testify against others working at Backpage. But Carl Fair will serve no more than five years in state prison under a plea agreement that was made. I feel like the more we dig and try to read and understand all of this, the web just gets so much more tangled and you can go down one side and then that has like three other alleyways, but then we're missing a whole other seven parts and it's just not connecting because it just seems so cut and dry if this crime was committed and it's there and we have the evidence, something should stick, but it just doesn't. Well, and then I was like, oh, you know, like no more than five years. I was like, he should be about to be released or have already been released. I was trying to like find an update on this and like nothing was really coming up. There were very few articles in 2021, 2022. Most everything regarding Backpage is all 2017, 2018. It's like everything that has to do with sex crimes just vanishes into thin air. So up to this point, this episode's been very heavy with data and statistics. And something we discussed outside of this recording session is how we want to bring the concept of human trafficking to reality for everybody. No matter how much we list numbers and statistics, it's still pretty difficult to grasp the reality of human trafficking. Which is why we brought up, you know, the back page story and documentary, but also why we want to discuss some very recent human trafficking operations that took place in the United States this year to help uh, conceptualize what human trafficking can actually look like in all of its forms. So if this part of the episode is something you would like us to do more of every now and then, please let us know. We can add a case or two to the end of episodes going forward to keep the reality of this alive. But for now, we're just going to go over two law enforcement operations that occurred in California and Florida just a few weeks apart. Isabel, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. The first is... Operation Reclaim and Rebuild in Los Angeles, California. In this operation, the Los Angeles Police Department, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, a regional human trafficking task force, and 83 additional law enforcement agencies worked together in conjunction with victim advocacy groups. This was a statewide operation from January 22nd to January 28th, 2023. In this operation, their goal was to raise public awareness of human trafficking by searching for potential sex trafficking victims, arrest any exploiters, and investigate prostitution-related crimes. This resulted in 368 suspect arrests, which included 195 exploiters. They rescued six minors from these exploiters and they place them in protective custody. These minors will receive assistance from the Department of Children and Family Services and Victim Advocacy. 125 adults identified were victims and they received victim services. So there was a total of 131 survivors recovered and offered suitable services. That is such a large operation. You know, it took so many different agencies working together 
uh, and they were really able to crack down on like so many people that were working together to exploit like so many victims. California is a huge state. So this was a statewide operation. So that collaboration is key in getting this many arrests and rescues. Well, and I think also something that, you know, this example kind of helps highlight too. I mean, it's across a whole entire state. It wasn't just like one small region, but people were being transported to and from. Um, there were different connections made all across the state. Um, and so it was very wide reaching. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I can appreciate the use of, you know, the advocacy groups uh, coupled with the law enforcement operation to make these rescues and help the survivors um, in their recovery after the fact. Yeah, I think it's really important that they noted that they were working with advocacy groups and that they were just providing any services that any survivors would need. I think that's huge. We're going to see collaboration again in this next operation that occurred in Florida. This next operation was called Operation Traffic Stop. It's like they're trying to steal our name, I swear. <gasps> no, I think although, I think we're a little bit newer, though, than, than this. I know. We, we did not steal it from them, I promise. But anyway, this was located in Polk County, Florida. So the team on this was the Polk County Sheriff's Office Vice Unit. I'm going to butcher this name. The Okeechobee County Sheriff's Office, seven other police departments, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, Florida Department of Children and Families, five other social services organizations, the Office of the State Attorney, the 10th Judicial Circuit, and a state attorney. This operation occurred between February 6th and February 12th of this year. And what happened in this operation was that prostitutes were screened by detectives and social services to determine if they were being trafficked or exploited, and they were then offered social services. 111 prostitutes were arrested, and then 24 were later identified as human trafficking survivors. 89 suspects were arrested for soliciting a prostitute, and 13 other suspects were arrested. 10 of these were deriving proceeds from prostitution or aiding and abetting prostitutes. Think pimps and traffickers are examples of these other kinds of suspects. What was really interesting about reading the Operation Traffic Stop was that they included notes in their operation. Five suspects were previously arrested by the sheriff's office during a similar undercover operation, and two were just arrested in September. 14 arrested are suspected of being illegally in the country, and six of the 14 were identified as trafficking survivors. Many suspects had criminal histories, which included violent felonies such as kidnapping, robbery, aggravated assault, and sex offenses. Detectives also seized fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamines, and marijuana. And this one might be my favorite. The oldest person arrested was 68 years old, and the youngest was only 19. Yeah, I mean, you really see the trend here with the collaboration um, across different agencies. And what I think is really interesting about this example is it shows how, you know, when you're working with different like specialized agencies and even like advocacy groups, they were able to identify from uh, the sex workers that were arrested into who. 
um, were human trafficking survivors. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to kind of pin that out and then, you know, hopefully get them, you know, some kind of assistance or services that they might need. Right. And since they were working with social services organizations, I'm going to assume that they did get any type of follow-up care that they needed. But one thing I'm quite skeptical of is that 24 out of 111 were identified as human trafficking survivors. I'm starting to question maybe if some other portion of this prostitute population might not recognize that they were being trafficked or exploited, like we mentioned earlier. Right. I mean, that happens often, though, where, you know, somebody's situation may not look like the stereotype of human trafficking. And so they don't even realize um, that that is their actual personal situation. And so I definitely, like you said, there probably were several victims of human trafficking in that pool that were missed, which is definitely unfortunate. Yeah, exactly. But something else that really stood out to me was that there were so many other crimes or paraphernalia found on these scenes or in these areas. Like they saw all of the, these illicit drugs, which people don't necessarily think of when they hear of human trafficking and prostitution. But you can see that these illegal operations are linked and intertwined with one another. Also, you know, important to note, though, with this example, that even though there were other crimes occurring at the same time, it's important to recognize both the drug-related crimes, but then also to recognize sex trafficking that occurred and to get um, perpetrators on both. Yes, earlier we talked about how these people will probably definitely get convicted on their illicit drug crimes, but won't face any harsh penalties for the exploitation, which, I mean, we already saw that five were already previously arrested during a similar operation and two were just arrested in September. So clearly something's not working. Right. I mean, they say that a lot of the perpetrators uh, are like reoccurring perpetrators. Yes. If you're arrested and you're just getting away with it, why wouldn't you offend again? What's the worst that happens? You get locked up for a couple days, couple weeks, and then you're back out on the streets doing it again. Well, and this, I mean, this timeline literally shows what we were talking about at the very beginning, though, too, with how um, perpetrators get off on light sentencing. Yeah. Well, what was not so surprising was the fact that suspects had criminal histories of, you know, kidnapping, aggravated assaults, and sexual offenses. But maybe the most surprising note here, at least to me, was the ages that you mentioned of the youngest arrested and the oldest arrested. Yes, this is almost like a fun fact of the operation because it's such a wide gap and it really puts into perspective how broad this issue is and how so many different types of people can get linked into this crime. Well, and two, it shows that, you know, almost anybody can be a perpetrator of human trafficking. It's not just, you know, the, the scary old man. It's the 20-year-old, you know, college-age, 19, age, 19 uh, man. Right. And these were just the arrested. So it doesn't clarify if the 19-year-old was 
a trafficker or if he was just a John trying to elicit a prostitute, which even if you were eliciting a prostitute, you're fueling these operations to continue. Right. So you're still a part of the whole cycle of um, human trafficking perpetrators. Yes, exactly. From 68 to 19. Well, from California to Florida, there's two major examples of human trafficking cases that happened this year. Georgia, thank you so much for bringing those to our attention. And hopefully we will all pay attention to these cases as they continue to come out in the news. All right, everybody. Today's myth is that human trafficking victims will attempt to seek help in public. Victims may be afraid to come forward and get help. Uh, They may be forced or coerced uh, through threats or violence. They may fear uh, retribution from traffickers, including danger to their families. And they may not be in possession of or have control over their identification documents. So these are all reasons why, actually, in reality, a lot of the times, human trafficking victims actually might not come forward um, if they are in a public setting. This is so sad to me because I'm sure if you're in this type of situation, the only thing you want to do is just scream to anybody nearby saying, help me, please help me, get me away from this person, I'm in serious danger. But just by doing that, Their trafficker could just as easily take them away, say, oh, no, we're fine. She or he is just having a bad day. It's okay. Like they're just off their medications or whatever. And as soon as they take their victim back home, they face some sort of punishment. Right. Like potential help could be so close. Um, And later we'll do an episode uh, on trauma bonding, which will also give further insight into why people might not attempt to seek help. But I mean, even like other reasons why somebody might not is because that manipulation can be so deep rooted and traffickers, I mean, they could have instilled distrust in other people, um, especially like people of authority, like law enforcement and the people that they are trafficking. And so they might not even know who to turn to. Right. It might even be a scarier thought for the victim to face an unknown instead of knowing what type of pain their abuser is already going to put them through. Thank you, Isabel, for myth number two. And thank you to our audience. If you stuck around till the end, we really appreciate it. And be sure to follow Moms in Security on our Twitter, our LinkedIn, our Instagram uh, for any updates that the organization is doing or to message us with your comments and questions about the episode. We really want to hear from you. We are going to have all of that linked in the description of this episode. We hope to see you guys back here every other Monday as we continue to release new episodes. Stay curious.